What we are engaged in, what has been often said, the most impactful study in our FOF membership class, our study in the attributes of God. Uh, we're going to do a, a survey approach, survey study the attributes of God. We do not have the luxury of time to delve into each attribute uh, and spend adequate time in preparing for these messages. Um, there's so many great books on God's attributes of God. There is no excuse for us why we did not perceive God in the right way, why we did not understand or comprehend God biblically. There are so many resources available. Men like Arthur Pink, MacArthur, Piper, you know, Calvin have written many tomes on the attributes of God that are so, so invaluable, so precious to us and exhort you that this would be the catalyst for you to study more about the God that we love, God that we worship, God whom we trust in. Two books have been very formative, very helpful to me in preparing for these messages. Uh, I brought the first book with me last week, uh, the 1,200-page book by Stephen Charnock, uh, written in the 17th century, The Existence and Attributes of God. Just incredible insights into... God's character and its significance, its relevancy, its implications to our lives. It's so practical. It's not a scholarly, cold, uh, dead book full of just uh, archaic truths. He's able to highlight its relevance. He knows the ma- knows man's hearts. He's a, he's a pastor. He's a shepherd, and it's been a, really a. a, a a passionate, real soul-stirring experience to read through that book in, pre- in preparing for our study. The other book that's been very instrumental is on the other side in terms of size. It's less than 100 pages. I mean, it's, you know, Stephen Charnock's book probably weighs five pounds. You could do your curls with it as you read and get a workout. The other book is less than 100 pages, written in the, well, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, and uh, it's equally um, uh, profound, equally uh, um, beneficial to, to, to know God, and that's A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. So, if you're intimidated by Charnock, then with 1,200 pages, I encourage you, if you haven't done so yet, read A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. I have a quote there in your outlines. Wrong ideas about God are not only the foundation from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with our worship and our moral standards decline along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of our simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. 
though she may continue to cling to a sound nominal creed, her practical working creed has become false. The masses of her, of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what He actually is, and that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about Him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Compared with our actual thoughts about Him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. So we need to, we need to dig. We need to do an archaeological dig into our hearts to discover what we really believe about God. We deceive ourselves from even these songs, even these are statements that we make, the Christian verbiage, we deceive ourselves to think we have a lofty enough view of God when in actuality, far too many Christians have a view of God that is so indignant, it is beneath the, the, the dignity of God. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God, low views of God, destroy the gospel, for all who hold them. He says here several times, a lofty concept of God is absolutely necessary. A lofty view of God. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. This is one of the reasons why we're studying the attributes of God. So that we might have a high view of God. So that we might have a lofty opinion of God of the Scriptures. I would contend it is impossible to have a high enough view of God. What is the default view is too low. Right. The conception of God that we all of us have, by default, is a low view of God. We wake up every morning with a high view of ourselves, instinctually. And instinctually we wake up with a low view of God. Therefore we must fight to have a high view of God. And how do we fight? It's by learning and understanding and meditating on who God is, what He is like according to the Scriptures. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage the saints of Cornerstone to have a high view of God. Now why? I mean, there, it's, it's biblical, it's idolatrous, we don't. I mean, there's so many reasons, in, inherent reasons. But to aid you into that, to encourage you, give you four benefits of a lofty view of God. Having a high view of God, it's good for you. It'll benefit you. It'll help you. I hope these four reasons will cause you and help you to fight a greater fight against low, against the low view of God cause you to guard and cherish a lofty opinion of of God in the Scriptures. The first benefit is freedom from fear. Freedom from fear. John Flavel said, "It is a great, dreadful punishment for God to deliver a man up into the hands of his own fears." 
I think there is scarce a greater torment to be found in the world than for a man to be his own tormentor and his mind an instrument of torture to his own body. There is scarce a greater torment when you... The source of your torment, your torture is yourself and it's your mind. What a dismal life do they live who have no peace by day, no rest by night. The days of such men are terrible days. They wish for the night, hoping it may give them some rest. But their fears go to bed with them. Their hearts pant and meditate terror. And then, oh, that it were day again. It's like what Rachel was sharing. She would, as a child, think about God, wonder about God. And what was driving her at times was fear. Fear about what can happen, what might happen. And these were oppressive to her. What sets us free from fear? Like a slave master, fear is controlling, fear is a powerful emotion. And Oswald Chambers has said, high view of God kills fear. Kills fear. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. See, we understand the mind of the unbeliever. They are brazen, they're boastful and proud. You know, externally, they think they have such courage and boldness, but we know their hearts. Because they do not fear God, they're dominated by fear, worry, and anxiety. They stay up late at night, they cannot sleep. Right? They drown their fears with alcohol. That is why psychopathic drugs are being prescribed at an alarming rate. Right? I mean, I've, I've talked to doctors here, and they've told me, James, you'd be surprised how many patients, how many patients I meet, the percentage of my patients is all about their fears, all about their worry, their anxiety. They need somebody to talk to to leave their fears because they're, they're so uh, ensnared by it. We understand. That's why David said in Psalm 27:1, because he had a high view of God, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? Yahweh, He's my hope and my salvation. He's my light. Is there anyone that I should be afraid of? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, 1, 2, and 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roam, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. Psalm 56, verses 2 through 4. My enemies trample on me all day long. Many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he lists the things that cause fear in the hearts of men. 
tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword, even death. Can these things separate me from God? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That is why I want you, I want me to have a high view of God. It liberates us. It sets us free from these base fears that seek to control and snare us and lead us astray from God. It allows us to live life by faith. Not out of fear. The wicked man says, there's a lion outside. I can't go outside. Right? I can't uh, you know, do this. I can't do this ministry. I can't uh, do this work. I can't, you know, I can't even walk out the door. I can't even go to this country, go on vacation, even go to missions no less, all out of fear. I can't move on with my life. I mean, so many things. It's fear. What sets us free? It's fear of God. Second benefit of a high view of God is freedom from the fear of man. Freedom from the fear of man. And all of us have fear of man. Some of you, some of us, it might be harder to discern, be more difficult to see, but no one is above fear of man. Even the Pharisees, John 12, 42 and 43, they would not profess faith in Christ because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. It's bondage. It's tiresome. But whoever trusts the Lord is saved. This is a powerful fear. So many live in bondage in their hearts because of this fear. Fear of man. They want to please man. Please their husbands or wives or children, parents, boss, friend, their pastor, maybe, right? Their small group leader. Maybe not pastor. <laughs> you know, Flock shepherd, even please strangers, seeking approval, wanting to be liked, they fear rejection, fear being alone, they want to be accepted, or it's ultimately, essentially it's idol worship, it's self-worship, right? We want everyone to love us. You know, the addiction of praise, the addiction of love from others. We, we love ourselves so much that we'll do whatever it takes to maintain that level of acceptance and love and do everything it takes to increase it. So, I don't know. I mean, just you guys know illustrations better than I, whether you, know, you study because of this fear, you want to get good grades, you want to make a lot of money, you want to buy a certain car. You want to dress a certain way. You want to talk a certain way. Behave in a certain way. Change your personality completely. All just for, because of fear of man. And it is tiresome. It is it's just dreadful. And it is unrelenting. There is no end to this fear. Once you give in to this fear of man, there is no end. You know, you're... You're, you're bought in. You're, you're, you're committed. And you just, you're in it for the long haul, for life term. The only thing that sets us free, liberates us, is the fear of God. You know, we see that in Peter's life, Acts 
In Matthew 26, he denied the Lord three times because of fear of a servant girl, right? Fear of children. And yet, and before the Sanhedrin, he declares, along with the apostles, we must fear God. We must obey God rather than men. We will continue to preach the gospel. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for His name. Third benefit is freedom from fear and chaos and suffering. Freedom from fear and chaos and suffering. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Figurative way of saying those who have died. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So he's talking about a particular kind of grief. That those without the knowledge of God experience and encounter a distinct kind of emotional sorrow. And so though they act with such uh, brazen uh, pride, presumptuousness, they wear pride as their necklace, thinking they live above suffering. When they encounter genuine suffering, especially the loss of a loved one, because they don't have the knowledge of God, they experience this particular kind of sorrow. It's chaos. It's giving, giving themselves to the fear, dreadful fear of meaninglessness of life, of, of chaos, of emptiness. The feeling of being utterly abandoned and alone, completely isolated. I mean, if you've, if you've experienced sorrow and pain, and you kind of try to describe it, what does that feel like? A word that will come to mind is, is fear. Pain, emotional, spiritual pain, is so similar to just fear. And this is what unbelievers experience. I mean, went to a funeral... Two years ago, the saddest funeral that I've ever been to, and I pray I'll never attend a funeral, anything close to it, where a young girl was killed. And she was five or six years old. And see a small coffin, that just breaks your heart. You see the parents, and there are people there, clearly you could tell by their, how they were crying, they're unbelievers. Because... They feel such pain, such loss, but there's no answer. They don't know why. They don't know, have answers to who, what is going on. There's no meaning. There's no understanding. There's no insight. It's just chaos. They're left alone in their pain. They're in darkness. And there's no source of help. There's no hope. The parents who lost a child were believers. And you could tell they were believers. Because how they responded to the loss of their daughter. They responded. They were grieving. They were sorrowful. They were crying. They were weeping. But they know. They knew what they were crying about. See, they knew God was sovereign. They knew God's in control. They knew God cares. That God is there. That God's grace is sufficient. Their sorrow was, I'm going to miss my daughter. Ah, I'm not going to see her grow up. I'm not going to see her graduate from junior high, high school, even get married. They know what they're sorrowful about, but the, the line was clear. They were not grieving over just this unknown, without hope, without understanding, without understanding about who God is and what He is and what He has done. 
high view of God grants us the strength to grieve rightly during times of suffering. During times of suffering, we do not lose heart. We do not give in to despair. We do not lose hope. And what helps us to, to, to stay, stay, stay and, and not give way to despair is a right view of God. God is omniscient. God knows. God is omnipresent. He's here. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. This is within His control. God is immutable. He's unchanging. God is love. He loves. And therefore, He understands loss because He lost His only Son because of love. So He understands my loss. So, you want to prepare for such sufferings in life. You know, such loss is not if we will experience loss. Death has come into the world because one man has sinned. Therefore, all have sinned. And all die. So, such experience is for all of us. One day, we will meet face to face with such suffering. And a high view of God will cause you, enable you, strengthen you to... Uh, to cry and weep and grieve rightly. Fourthly, fourth benefit, it'll give you freedom from an empty and joyless existence. Freedom from an empty and joyless existence. I love what Augustine said in his book on the freedom of the will. Do I have that in your outline? Augustine's quote. Okay. Man, that's like, you know, you want to type it out at home and print it out and frame it, you know, right by your desk. You know, he lived for years as an immoral, immoral man. He lived to gratify his flesh. And he tried many times to um, forsake his sins and he was utterly un- uh, unable. And he talks about this in, in, in this quote. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was a hidden secret place from which you were summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. See, like the joys of the world, it's not true joy. It's fruitless joy. It's temporal joy. It's external happiness, but there's no sweetness to it. There's no beauty there's no true lasting satisfaction. And we know that as Christians. Right? You're smiling, you're laughing, you're acting like you're having a good time, but we know it's an act. We know that at the core, it's empty. It's barren. There's no lasting joy. And that's what he's saying. God delivered me from fruitless joys, which I once feared to lose, you drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. God, you are the sovereign joy. The Christian life is not a life of just denial and, and just living this dreadful, uh, mundane existence. No, the Christian life is experiencing true joy in God. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. How wonderful is that? Though not to flesh and blood, 
You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Elsewhere he wrote, you made us for yourself. And our hearts find no peace till they rest in you. Augustine said our hearts are restless until we find God or God finds us. And there's true rest in Him. Jonathan Edwards, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better and the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of earthly friends. They're good. There, there is joy there, but they're but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Therefore, the psalmist says, Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself. Piper said, Cheap end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The high view of God enables us to enjoy God more. Experience greater sweetness, greater pleasure, greater happiness. We want to have a high view of God for selfish purposes, for self-centered, selfish reasons. Because we want to enjoy this world and God's creation and God Himself. And a lofty, right view of God enables us to do that. Oh, the joy of knowing God. I mean, so many quotes. John's label, that the soul is exceedingly ravished. When it first looks in the beauty of Christ, it is never weary of Him. Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of all of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is the meeting place of all the waters in the world. So Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. So, this, these are the reasons, these are the benefits of a high view of God, may these benefits aid us in our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of understanding God. So let's go to the attributes of God. Attributes of God. So Charnock has been very helpful, and uh, A.W. Tozer has been helpful thus far, and now I'm going to employ another student of the Bible that was helpful to me in this section, and that's Rex Morishita. I have my notes and the attributes, and I saw Rex's notes. Notes are much better than mine. I'm humble enough to admit, when I see truth, when I see you know good good teaching, I'll I'll, I'll take it. So, give credit to Rex for just a good study in this, the attributes of God. An attribute is something attributed as belonging, a quality, character, characteristic, or property. Something as belonging. An attribute then is a quality or property of a thing or person. Things as well as people have attributes. Attributes are what distinguishes one person or thing from other persons or things. 
attributes of a person are so essential to a person that without them, he would not be what he is. And this is how God reveals himself through the scriptures. God reveals himself through the holy scriptures by way of revealing his attributes. Many ways of classifying God's attributes will use, uh, will employ the most common, common one, communicable and incommunicable. Communicable attributes are relative, they are degreed, they are found in a limited degree in God's creative being. So God's communicable attributes are found in believers. Varying degrees, but it's communicated to us. Commune to us. Incommunicable are attributes that belong solely to God. Attributes that belong solely to God. So we will begin with the incommunicable attributes. Again, a brief survey. We can only touch upon a few of them. First incommunicable attribute of God is His self-existence. Self-existence. This means that God existed, exists independently of any cause. He is the uncaused cause. God exists from Himself. He has always existed. And He will exist forever. And no one has caused His existence and no one can make him to cease. There is simply no cause of his existence outside of himself. His existence is not contingent on anything. He exists by his own being. He was not created. He is not dependent on anything or anyone else. The basis of his existence is not in his will. He did not choose to exist. But it is his divine nature. God does not exist because he wants to, but his very nature demands that he exists. And therefore, he was and is and is to come. His self-existence is seen in the special name by which he revealed himself to Israel. And Moses asked his name in Exodus 6.4, He said, Yahweh, I am that I am. I am the existent one. I am the existent one. Second attribute is immutability. Immutability, some verses, Deuteronomy, excuse me, Numbers 23.19. Numbers 23.19. God is not man that he should lie, son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. And your ears have no end. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 
immutability of Christ. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Immutability means that God is not subject to change. All of us, we are subject to change. We cannot, we have no power against change. Growing old, gaining weight, losing hair, these are not options for us. Sorry, bad news. But not God. In His nature and character, God is absolutely without change. Immutability is that perfection of God by which He is devoid of all change, not only in His being, but also in His perfections. There is no degrading of God. God does not fall apart. God does not lose power. God does not degrade over time. He is free from all diminution, growth or decay, Louis Burkhoff. And so, all of God's attributes are included in this immutability. There is no increase in His power or decrease in His power. There is no increase in His sovereignty or decrease. There is no increase in His wisdom. It is omniscience, unchanging. He is never more, oh, today He's a little more holy than yesterday. Oh, we better be on our best behavior. Oh, today He is less holy. We can kind of slack off. There is no degree in His holiness. It's immutable in His righteousness, in all His attributes. I mean, it's, it's a intimidating, dreadful doctrine to unbelievers. You know, they say, you know, in the Old Testament, God was God of wrath, but He changed. Now it's a God of love. No. Not at all. In the Old Testament, you can see God's love everywhere. In the New Testament, you can see God's wrath and judgment everywhere. How is that? It's because He's immutable. And so, if He's unchanging in His ways, and your sins remain, it is a dreadful doctrine. For believers, it is a comforting doctrine. Because it means that God is faithful. He's not capricious. Right. He's not. He's not. A, he's not just shifting like the wind. He's not changing who he is. Where we don't know where he stands. He's faithful to his promises, to his covenants, to us, and so we can trust him. Third, incommunicable doctrine attribute of God is omnipresence. Turn with me to Psalm 139, verse 7. Psalm 139, verse 7. Here is um, David speaking of the nearness of God. Nearness of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day. For darkness is as light with you. 
Turn to Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Am I not a God that is near to you? So He's transcendently present in all the world, and yet, by His omnipresence, He's immediately present. He's imminently present. He's with us at every moment. Am I not, am I a God at hand? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Is that possible? Rhetorical question. Do I not fill heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? Omnipresence means that God is everywhere present at the same time. In the fullness of God's essence, He fills all parts of the universe. This is not pantheism, where pantheism says, God is in the tree, and the tree is part of God. God is part of the sun, the sun is a part of God. Where God is fused throughout His creation. No, there is a transcendent element of God's omnipresence. He is separate from His creation. And yet, He is omnipresent. Though separate, He is everywhere present. The Bible teaches that God is in all parts of the universe, but the universe is not God. He is not the universe. Amazing doctrine. <clears throat> Again, a comfort to believers that He will never leave us. Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you nor forsake you in the Greek. It's actually three negatives. I will never ever leave you nor forsake you. He's always by us even in our most darkest trying times, even when we're mired in the most horrible sins, God's presence does not leave us. And secondly, it is a warning against disobedience. It's a preventative doctrine against sin. We cannot commit a single sin without God being there. We have not a thought or intent of the heart without His knowing and feeling it. No wrong desire ever escapes His presence. No matter how we may fool others, we never fool God's omnipresence. Fool our omnipresent God. And that was experienced last week, wasn't it? We were studying practical atheism. I don't know about you, but as I was reading that section, even preaching it, it was like, God found me out. I, I was hiding in secret in my heart. Raging against God's authority, God's sovereignty, God's holiness. I had rebelled against His authority, His laws. I had wanted different things. I was envious. I was jealous. Sometimes I wish God didn't exist. Sometimes I wish these laws weren't given. And I thought I was hiding in secret and God didn't know. And as Charnock declares that sermon about God's knowledge... I was found out. He knows my heart. He, he knows his secret intentions of my heart, my desires, and understands what it means. So through that study, I was able to, by the help of the Holy Spirit, go deeper into my sins and allow God's omnipresence to be embraced and accepted in my heart as well. The secret places of my heart. So God's omnipresence is a preventative towards 
secret sins. Few more. Omniscience. Omniscience means to know all, to have perfect knowledge. God knows all things perfectly. God sees and hears everything. God has perfect knowledge of the universe. He never learns anything. He doesn't, he does no research. He reads no books. He doesn't Google anything. He knows everything. He never grows in his understanding. And what's more incredible, he has perfect knowledge of our ways. Perfect knowledge of us. Each individual person and all human experiences, our ways are known to the Lord. Our words are known to the Lord. Our thoughts are known to the Lord. Our sorrows and our trials, our deepest concerns and worries are known to the Lord. Our future actions and final state, they are all known to the Lord. God knows from all eternity and what shall be in all eternity. <coughs> the entire plan of the ages is fully known to God. Last incommunicable attribute, omnipotence. He's all powerful. Absolute power. Absolute authority. Absolute ability. Genesis 18.14 is anything too hard for the Lord? Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Matthew 19.26 Jesus said, With man this is impossible. For a rich man to be saved. But with God all things are possible. One of the names of God is power. Mark 14.62 God has the authority to act because He is sovereign and He has the ability because He is powerful. Isaiah 46.10 Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 40.28 Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not become weary or tired. Isaiah 45.12 It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their hosts. God needs nothing and from nothing He created the universe. Limitless power, limitless authority. Highlight to you just three of God's communicable attributes. There are many more. We'll focus our attention on just three. First is holiness. Our God is a holy God. Psalm 99.5 Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Why? Because He is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah 6.3 And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. 
1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Bible places a chief emphasis on God's holiness. In fact, He is described by the word holy more than any other attribute of God. More than any other. It is the most central, epitomizing attribute of God's being, His holiness. It is this perfection of God's being that is highlighted, emphasized, spotlighted in the scriptures. In fact, in Psalm 89, Psalm 89.35, He swears by His holiness. He could have sworn by any of His perfections. But God chose to swear according to His holiness because that attribute gives meaning to all the rest. It is His central attribute. Tells us that His power is a holy power. Psalm 98.1 His promises are holy promises. Psalm 105.42 his name is a holy name because that's his central attribute. Psalm 103.1 His throne is a holy throne. Psalm 47.8 That's why His Spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's why His presence is a holy presence. That's why the Bible is the Holy Bible because it emanates from God's central attribute as a thrice holy God. Negatively, it means that He is separate from all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that is sin. He has no impurity. He is pure, separate from any kind of evil. Positively refers to the absolute integrity and purity of the nature of God. He is righteous. He is just. He is, 1 John 1, 5, pure light. Pure light. God's holiness means he can never approve of any evil. He necessarily, universally, per- perpetually hates all evil. That is his response to sin. He has no other recourse because that is his central attribute. Because he is a thrice holy God, his highest desire for believers is holiness. A repeated refrain in the Old and New Testaments Be holy because I am holy. My highest desire for believers is holiness because God says, I am holy. And God's holiness is the glory and beauty of all of God's perfections. God's holiness is the glory and beauty of all of God's perfections. His his holiness gives moral beauty, moral purity to each attribute and to Himself. He is completely the other, separate from us in this way. Second communicable attribute is familiar to us. God is love. There are three things the Bible specifically says, states about God. John 4.24, God is spirit. 1 John 1.5, God is light. 1 John 4.8, God is love. It's not saying He loves. It's saying He is love. 
He is the epitome of what love is. He is the sole source of real love because at the heart of the essence of God, He is love. Love is ascribed to all three persons of the Godhead. John 16.27 to the Father. John 13.34 to the Son. Romans 15.30 to the Holy Spirit. God is love and His love is eternal, constant, an essential part of, who, of His nature. His love is immutable. His love does not ebb and flow. His love does not rise or, or, or go lower or decrease. There is no diminishment in His love. It is immutable and His love is unconditional. It's uninfluenced. See, if, if His love was conditioned upon our degreed righteousness, then His love will ebb and flow, will increase and decrease based upon our righteousness or our sinfulness. But the Bible says God's love is unconditional. He did not love us because we were worthy of that love. Because we deserve that love. Because we were lovable. If that was the case, His love will shift. And in fact, He could not love us because of His holiness. John 3.16, God loved us without condition, according to His own good pleasure. And because He is immutable, His love does not change. We have no fear, we have no worry, we have no concern about, will God change in His love for us? Will God's nature change? His heart for us change? Because it's tied to who He is. His love is uninfluenced, infinite, without limits and unconditional. Finally, and we'll spend the rest of our time here, God's, God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means highest, chief, supreme. God's sovereignty means that He is the absolute and sole ruler who is independent of all other rules. No one elected Him to power. No one could depose Him of His power, of His dominion. We do not grant, we do not grant Him sovereignty. We do not grant Him authority. It is His. Isaiah 40:17. All the nations are as nothing before Him. All the nations are accounted by Him as less than nothing in emptiness. Isaiah 40:21 through 24. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood it from the beginnings of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when He blows on them, these rulers, princes and kings of the earth, when He blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like the stubble, but His reign is eternal. This simply states, this doctrine simply states that all things are under His ruler, rule and control, that nothing happens in this universe 
without his direction and permission. He is a God who works not just some things, but he is a God who works all things. Nothing takes him by surprise. Pastor John Piper, it is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that He does so always and without exception. I mean, let me rattle off a list of the extent of His sovereignty. God is sovereign over the entire universe. God is sovereign over all nature. God is sovereign over demons and Satan himself. God is sovereign over nations, over human beings, over animals. God is sovereign over, quote, accidents. There are no accidents to God. God is sovereign over, quote, free acts of men. God is sovereign over sinful acts of men. Deeds done in the world, deeds done to us. God is sovereign. A believer said that when you learned this doctrine at our church, he was shocked by it. His initial response was anger at God, resentment towards God. Why? Because God's sovereignty attacks man's sovereignty, attacks our pride, attacks our rule, our authority, our prideful uh, statement of our independence. And when we learn about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, he's being honest. response is anger, resentment, bitterness, Maybe even hatred. The believer said, The truth that I wasn't in control of my own life and my destiny greatly disturbed me. But as I grew in a right and high view of God, realized most of my problems were rooted in the wrong view of God, wrong view of God's sovereignty. I was focused on self and led to bondage when I focused on God and His sovereignty set me free. It is a shocking doctrine. It is the great doctrine. R.C. Sproul said it's God's favorite doctrine. I would agree. If you were to ask God, God, what is your favorite attribute? He would say, my sovereignty. Because it tells you that I'm in charge. Right? How dare you? How dare you usurp and dare rebel against my rule? He has the absolute and final authority over the greatest and least creatures. The notion of sovereignty is inseparable from the notion of God. He cannot be God and not be the supreme ruler of the world. If He is God, He is the supreme ruler. R.C. Sproul has a good illustration. I'm going to paraphrase it for our, our purposes. The question that is raised is, is God in control of every single molecule in the universe? Put it another way, is there a single organism anywhere in the universe that has free will? Is there a person in the whole universe that has free will? Your answer reveals not whether you're a Christian or not. Your answer reveals not whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist. Your answer reveals whether you're a theist or an atheist. Your answer reveals whether you believe God exists or God doesn't exist. If you believe that there is someone in the world that has free will independent of God, then God is not supreme, God is not sovereign, God is not in control, therefore God is not God, God doesn't exist. Because the very definition of God is sovereignty. 
He rules, He reigns, He controls. Therefore, if a single organism, single molecule has free will, God doesn't exist, you're an atheist. But if you say, no one has free will, the only being who has will that is completely free, independent, not contingent upon anything else, anyone else, is God. No one has free will. Then, you are a theist. You believe in God, and you believe in God's sovereignty. If there is one maverick molecule, God is not sovereign. If God is not sovereign again, He is not God. But God being God, He rules and controls all things. What is the basis of God's sovereignty? Where does, this, where does God get His sovereignty from? I mean, first and foremost, it is founded in His act of creation. Like, who died and made God king? Who gave God this authority to rule and reign over the universe and over my life? It's based upon His creation. He is the Almighty Creator. The sovereignty of God naturally rises from the relation of all things to Himself as their entire Creator and their natural and inseparable dependence upon Him. So we acknowledge if you create something, you have ownership of it. If you create something out of clay, it belongs to you and you have a right to dash into pieces or put it on the mantle. If you create a work of art, you have the absolute right to continue drawing and improve that work of art or to rip it into pieces. You have authority over your creation. All the more God, because He is the Creator. He has absolute control over His creation. Unquestionable authority over what He has made. Psalm 89.11 The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. Why? Because you have founded them. Isaiah 44.24 Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who alone spread out the earth by itself. When God Himself makes a defense of His sovereignty, as we read this morning in Job 38-42, through 42, His chief arguments are drawn from the fact that He created all things. The strongest foundation for, a claim, for His claim of authority over man is that He created us, and the strongest obligation on man for our subjection to God is the fact that He created us, and evolution is... The world's answer to this truth. Why do, why do man gravitate towards this, this theory of evolution? Because it's our way of saying, we don't want to be under your reign. We deny that you created us. We do not belong to you. Our God is chance. Our God is just chaos. We want to worship, worship nature. Thus worshiping ourselves and our own rulership, our own authority, our own sovereignty, it's a man's foolish attempt to take God away from His dominion, away from His throne, and to replace God with ourselves. The Bible never defends His sovereignty. He is sovereign. 
God is God, incomparable, unchallengeable in might, power and sovereignty. My favorite verse concerning God's sovereignty, as he dealt with King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this is how I explain God's sovereignty to my daughters. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, to whomever He wants. Daddy can't do that. I'm not sovereign. I can't protect you. I have no power over your hearts. I want to save you right now. I want to guarantee salvation. I want to do so many things, but I'm not God. Only God can do whatever He wants. He's absolutely free. And only God has authority over time. Whenever He wants, when He chooses to act, He will. And to whomever He wants, that ability, that right, that authority belongs to God alone. This final thought to tie um, this truth of God's sovereignty to our lives. Um, God's sovereignty should free us from anxiety and worry about life. Matthew six twenty-five through 34 Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? I mean, he goes on. Do not be anxious do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is in control. What should occupy our hearts is not earthly. It's not earthly pursuits, earthly worries. It should be seek first God's kingdom. Matthew 6, 33. That's that passage right here. Seek first God's kingdom. God's sovereignty. God's rulership. And all these things God will take care of as we put God first in our lives. God's sovereignty ought to deal a death blow to our pride, boasting of what we have, boasting of who we are, boasting of what we achieved. What do we have that we did not receive from God? If you're smart, because God, according to His goodwill, made you smart. If you're rich, it's not because you were, so, you were so smart and made some good decisions. No, it's God's sovereignty. If you're strong, if you have health, it's by God's sovereignty. Any kind of pride, we have pride in the, 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 the dumbest things, and the most foolish things, things that we had no control over, should utterly humble us. It ought to Deal a death, bro- pro- death blow to our envy. I know. Look at others and say, well, why is my life like this? How come I don't have this? How come I have this trial? How come I have these problems in my life? How come I'm poor? How come I'm, I have weak faith? I envy these people. That's an affront to God's sovereignty. When we envy people and we're jealous, we're saying, God, you're not fair. 
you're not sovereign, you're not good. It should be this way. You should have made me like this. You should have shepherded me this way. My life should turn out like this, not the way it is now. I'm not, this, the way my life has turned out is not right, God. You are wrong and I am right. We have to repent in our, in our hearts and acknowledge God's sovereignty. Whatever our lot in life, rejoice. Be satisfied in God. A few more. Oh, utter contentment today. Um, you know, Paul said this, right, in Philippians, whether in plenty or in lack, I learned the secret of being content. So if God has blessed you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't feel guilty because God has blessed you. Right? This false humility. Um, right? This uh, notion of uh, poverty as being virtuous. God has blessed you. Be content. Give thanks to God. Do not boast of it. Do not give credit to yourself. Give credit to God. And praise God. If you're lacking, if you're without... If you're in a hard time in your life, you're also content because God who is sovereign gives and takes away the good and the bad and does all things according to His good pleasure. So our delight, our worship is tied not to our circumstances but is tied to God's sovereignty. And contentment, understanding that all that's happened in the past is the perfect will of God. Everything that has happened, we look back in our lives and we can be, become bitter, filled with regret, filled with um, even anger. Understand, everything that's happened, it was according to God's perfect sovereign plan. God willed it. We know because it's happened. Nothing happens according to God, apart from God's sovereignty. The future, we don't know God's will. Whether I'll be, you know, James 2. We're a mystery appears for a little while. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, happen in the next hour, but in the past, everything that's happened to our families, to our lives, to our people that we love, it was exactly according to God's perfect will. We don't understand it. We may never understand it. We have no right to question God. God, answer us. I demand answers. I want you to explain to me why this happened to my life, why this happened to my family, why this has happened to me now. God is not obligated to answer us as if we were sovereign, but we must be content with knowing who God is. God is faithful. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. He does all things according to His justice, according to His righteousness. So we are able to be content in light of God's sovereignty in just who He is and live in humble worship, humble contented worship, of God. May this be uh, just uh, encourage you to, to study the doctrine of God. May this not be uh, beyond end all study of the doctrine of God, but may it be just a little taste of the sweetness of knowing our Lord. We'll just close with, uh, after I pray, uh, 
Elder Bob will come up and pray and close. We'll not do a response song. If you just give me a moment to do a self-probing of your heart concerning your view of God and the practical outworkings of God's sovereignty in your own life. And I'll pray. Father, we are so thankful and praise your name because we are under a benevolent, merciful, patient ruler. You are not an uncaring God. You're not a God who is far, who is apathetic to the needs of your people. You're a God who is full of compassion and mercy and love, intimately involved in our lives the affairs, details of our lives. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you will take thought of him? Lord, we are less than dust. Before you, we are worms, brute beasts because of our sins. And you show us such kindness in caring for us and loving us. Lord, we... um, we ask that you would grant us hearts that would be enlarged by these lofty truths and that our hearts would long and crave after you, not in some sentimental, emotional way, not in some sensual way, but in a way that is um, biblical, a way that would cause us to have right views of you, that our conceptions of God, our attributes, understanding of your attributes would be consistent with the scriptures, a clear mental or apprehension of God, Lord, will be our pursuit so that our worship, our practice, our obedience, and our thoughts and intentions, attitudes of the heart would um, be fitting in your sight. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We praise your awesome, holy, majestic, sovereign name. May your people truly delight and truly seek to be loyal subjects of your kingdom. Lord, let me pray. Amen.